We pray that it is our heart to worship the Lamb of glory. Worship is not just the songs that we sing. It's the life that we live. It's not merely the life that we live. It is the response of our heart to your glory. The reality of regeneration is not that we know facts about Christ. It is that in the truth of Christ, we see the glory of Christ and of God. It is that our hearts and our affections are met with a sense of the wonder of grace, of your majesty, of your power, of your unsearchable greatness, and that our affections changed by this, our wills are moved to follow you, the shepherd whose voice we hear, the Lord whom we serve, realizing we are not our own. And though we struggle and we stumble along the way, this, our God, we pray, is an ever-growing reality in our heart. We thank you for the grace that has made it possible not merely to save us from the penalty of sin, but from sin's power ultimately one day from its very presence. Keep us encouraged by looking forward to that day, resting in every step along the way on the grace that is supplied to us fully and richly in Christ Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 7 as we come back into Ephesians, the uh, Ephesians, did I just say Ephesians? Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7. Uh, that would be in the Old Testament. Uh, we're coming back to our look at section uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. We began it a couple of weeks ago. The last week, of course, we had baptism and we'll finish it up uh, this morning. Uh, you know, just as a side note, I meant to actually mention this before we prayed, uh, but we sang that first. I love that song, Created Me a Clean Heart. That comes directly, the words do, from Psalm 51, as John mentioned, uh, David's prayer of repentance. Uh, he says there, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And uh, I think many of us may know, but in, in case someone doesn't know and could be a little confused by that line, he's not, he's not saying take God's Holy Spirit from me in the sense of lose my salvation. But David means that in the context as the king of Israel who had a, what is sometimes called a theocratic anointing. In other words, a particular anointing ability of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his role as the king of Israel. And he's essentially saying, don't take away the ability to do that, the power to do that, your spiritual empowering. We as believers cannot lose the Holy Spirit. We are, in fact, if we are true believers in Christ, have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is the down payment, the guarantee of our redemption. Well, that being said, uh, let's come back into Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. And let me briefly introduce this just with the reminder, with the precious reminder of the preciousness of the believer's confidence in the providence of God, his overall sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, his rule over everything that he has made, the guarantee that every word he has spoken will come to pass, that he who spoke it alone has the power to fulfill it, and he will indeed do that. The Puritans had a statement. Uh, I've mentioned it in the past. You may know. It is this, that the sovereignty of God is the, the soft pillow that I lay my head down on at night. In other words, I can rest and I can sleep contented in the sovereign hand of God and the security of my position before him and his rule over my life. 
And so the sovereignty of God is a precious, precious truth to God's people. And the providence of God is merely that sovereignty in action as it works itself out in the details of his purposes and his plan. Now the providence of God as well is not going to be the main topic, but it is the main theme going through here. Uh, is a very large topic. Uh, certainly it has to do with the way that God interacts with us in our life in a way that's certain to fulfill his purposes. But the providence of God reaches from everything from the very creation of the world to the ruling of that world to its attended end and everything in between. And this is what Solomon appeals to in part to us to find rest and contentment in the providence of God in light of particularly the shortness of our life here. So if we were to give a theme, it would be this. The spiritual wisdom embraces the shortness of life and the sovereignty of God and causes us to grow in character and contentment. That's the idea of this, this litany of proverbial statements that are connected together. But nonetheless, these, this uh, list of proverbial statements that bring that very issue to us, that spiritual wisdom embraces the shortness of life and the sovereignty of God, enabling us and motivating us to grow in character and contentment. Now, we looked at last week. There's two main categories uh, that we broke this up uh, into. And one is that wisdom in light of our weakness and then wisdom in light of God's sovereignty. We noted wisdom in light of our weakness uh, last week. How it considers the reality of death and cultivates character in life. We'll finish that up and then look at wisdom in light of God's sovereignty that lives in the present and lives under the mystery of providence. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 14. I'll briefly recap last week and we'll move forward. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. And do not say, why is the former days, is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? And in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Note first, that wisdom in light of our weaknesses 
in verses 1 through 9. And first, Solomon reminds us that wisdom considers the reality of death. We noted this last time. It is simply to say that the wise person considers death. Death is the reality. Death is to the wise person a teacher as well as an evangelist, as it has been said. And if we exercise the wisdom to stop and to think and listen, we will receive the benefits of knowing that our life here is short. And it takes intentionality, of course. It is, there are reminders of death all around us. We have cemeteries. We, we all have experienced death in our families. But it is not merely acknowledging death, but it is taking the time to consider its implications for our life. And what does it imply to us? When we think about death, it reminds us that this is a world under the reality of sin, of the burden of sin. Sin, death, you know, we don't think about it because it's natural to our existence, but death is an intruder into God's creation. Death is something that has come in, it is described in Scripture as an enemy. It is here because sin is here. When sin is no more, death will be no more. But when we consider death, we are reminded that we live still in a world under the corruption of sin. It reminds us as well of the seriousness of sin. Death brings not only an end date to this life, but a start date for eternity. And that is the most significant consideration. Death brings us into that eternal state in which we will live forever in joyful fellowship with God or eternally separated from Him in unending misery. And death is a reminder that this is a reality that faces us all. It's it reminds us of sin's perennial intention to corrupt everything good that God has made. Thirdly, it reminds us, death does, of the holy justice and the grace of God in which he provided a savior, Jesus Christ. He tasted death for everyone. And when we think of death, it should be for us as sinners a means of great consternation, of great concern. Uh, we should, left into our natural state, look at death and have great fear. When somebody says they fear death and they're outside of Christ, you go, that's a good thing. I don't want to alleviate that. I want to tell you it's worse than you can even imagine. Because you go into that state with the burden and the guilt of your sin against an infinitely holy God. And the glory and the wonder of the gospel is that God himself has borne that penalty. God himself has suffered death for us. God himself has taken on the condemnation that we deserve so that the one who believes will be forgiven and no longer has to fear death. That's what Jesus promised to Lazarus' sister, to Martha. The one who dies, who believes in him, will, die, will never die. Will never die. And that is there not to experience the reality of physical death, but you will never experience the separation from God you will enjoy with him even after physical death and unending fellowship and communion with him and so that is the glory of the gospel and and when we consider death we think of that that God himself is holy and just he does not wink at sin he does not merely overlook it he does not merely have a kind of blind compassion he is a holy compassion and a holy love and his justice fulfilled his holy demands on the cross so that he could extend grace and we as Christians are rejoice in that that we do not fear death it reminds us of the gospel, and it reminds us, lastly, death, death does, that we would be wise to think how we live in this world. Solomon makes the point that our character determines our confidence in meeting that day, that day in which we will 
stand before God. And so when we consider these things and we consider death, it should be a means of God shaping in our life godly character. And so then Solomon moves into that in verse 5. The character of the one who considers death. The character of the one who has a growing confidence to meet that day. And this again is verses 5 through 9. This reality for us, for the wise person, should again produce godly character marked by patient trust in God's purposes. It causes us to be more circumspect of ourselves and of life. Rather than merely looking for the things that will make us happier and feel better, it causes us to receive the things that will make us holier and to live better. That's the idea. So he says it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to, for one to listen to the song of fools. And the, the idea here is this, that we take hold of those things that will cause us to grow in spiritual wisdom and maturity and godly character. And we are cautious about those things and indeed avoid those things that will deaden that wisdom, that work of God's wisdom in our life. It means that we will not endlessly distract ourselves with the superficial, which is what our cultural thrives on. But the wise person engages his mind. He thinks, he considers, he reasons, he argues. The foolish person just goes from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and lives in a perpetual superficiality. That is our culture. In a way, I think probably in the history of the world, it's never been the culture because of electronics and internet and the way to endlessly distract ourselves with the stupid and the foolish and the superficial. There are, of course, helpful things uh, as well, but there is an endless opportunity to have our minds think about nothing of value all day long. And, And Solomon here is warning us against that, certainly not of iPhones, but the idea, do not be distracted with the superficial. Don't go to the place of pleasure and of mere laughter but go to the place that will cause you to think soberly and wisely and it is an issue of whether we take greater concern for our souls than our present giddiness now all of this matters to us only if we have come to understand and to taste and to spiritually see God in his infinite glory and sin in his misery and grace in its sweetness Otherwise, this is instruction that falls on deaf ears. Remember, the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. If there is not a fear of God, then this might be nice counsel, but it certainly will not change the decisions we actually make in everyday life. And so it's only important and moving to those who have been made alive to God, who take sin, grace, truth, holiness, and eternity seriously. It's not a hobby. It's not a secondary part of their life. It's not what they fit in. It is what they understand to be the very essence of our existence and the very essence of our salvation and why we exist rather than do not exist. It is to live for God. It is to live wisely. Otherwise, in so many words, you will hear this, the one who does not take this to heart and lives in the way that Solomon is warning about, it is then to hear this and to go and to drown yourself in the superficial, to chafe at rebuke, because far more important than your personal growth and holiness is your reputation and your sense of self-satisfaction. That would be the foolish person. It would be to leave and to fill our life with those things that are designed, again, to make us happy, which they don't ultimately, but not holy. And so if we take Solomon's wisdom up to this point, I would just put this question to you and as always to myself first. 
What decisions will you make right now to avoid this? In what way do you see that kind of superficiality in your life related to social media or other things? How much of your life is actually intentionally set and designed and disciplined to grow in character, maturity, and wisdom spiritually? Next then, he moves on to this. So he says, after the crackling of the thorn, bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This too is futility. In other words, it has no meaning. It's vain. It's empty. It has the, it has the appearance of meaning, but it isn't. It has no reality of it, substance of it. And then he goes in and he says this. He gives a warning as well. In verse 7, for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart or, or you could translate that it destroys the heart. Destroys the heart. Now there are two basic ways to understand this. One way to understand this is to say that the unremitting endurance of oppression of being wrongly attacked, held down or made to suffer can become a temptation for even the wise to act foolishly. That's one way to take it. Another way, which I think is the best way to take it, is to say this, that the wise here, it's a warning to the wise not to give in to temptation to oppress others for the sake of their own gain. In other words, the temptation to gain by compromising holiness is great. And when that happens, it corrupts the heart. So the general picture here is most likely of being worn down or overtaken by temptations. It is the danger of the one who compromises integrity, who abuses power or position for short, empty, and selfish gains. And what runs through the center of all of this, and all of Scripture really, but certainly Solomon's instructions here, is the need to be aware of what's going on in our hearts. It's in our hearts. The wise man is, considers in his heart uh, these things and the realities of death. The wise man in his heart may be sad, though his outer countenance appears, or may be happy, though his outer countenance may appear to be sad. It is the one who is wise does not get angry in heart. In other words, he's talking about the inner life here. This all takes place in the inner life. And the idea, and the, the thing to be aware of, is that where the heart is not guarded, sin works its corrupting power. That would be maybe a simpler way to say it. Where the heart is not guarded, sin works its corrupting power. What is the heart? Well, what do we think of usually in the culture? We think of heart as the, the seat of emotions. And, and it is, that, that is, that's a part of it. We do, we experience emotions internally. Uh, that, that is part of it, but by no means the essence of it. The heart, I think one put this well. The heart is the place where, in, in particular in the context of Ecclesiastes, the heart is the place where reflections and decisions are made. It's where we think. It's where we think. It's where we reason. It's where we experience what is truly valuable and meaningful to us is in the heart. That's where that all takes place. That's why in Proverbs 4.22, Solomon warns, though he was not a good example of this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. In other words, your actions will ultimately follow your thoughts because your thoughts are going to shape your affections, your values, and your purpose. And what you hold important and what you hold to be true and meaningful and what you hold to be true and meaningful and valuable 
is what your actions will ultimately pursue and do. And so the heart is out of what all of life flows out of the heart. Who we are in the heart is who we are. Proverbs 23, 7a, as a man thinks in his, or Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks within himself, so he is. You are no better than you are as you reason in yourself and as you think in yourself. I or anyone else, regardless of what the outer life might look like. Remember, that's constantly what Jesus was confronting the religion of first century Judaism with. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of things that are unrighteous. You're full of desires that are contrary to God's word. You're full of vanity and pride and lust and extortion and factions. Even though on the outside you look very good. So at the end of the day, who we are in our heart is who we are. No more, no less. And the battle for wisdom and for holiness against the world and the devil and our own temptations then begins in the mind. It begins with what we think about, with what we fill our minds with. Again, this shapes our affections and our actions. This is why we're continually called to renew our mind. Here, the wise person is faced with temptations and ultimately compromises because he's failed to consider his actions. He's failed to consider his character in light of the end. And it makes him mad, and he fails, and his heart is corrupted, is the temptation. And so the wise person avoids that by paying attention to the heart. It's really a matter of this. It's really a matter of what we treasure in the heart. You're going to do what you want to do, right? We're going to do what we want to do. At the end of the day, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going we're gonna to fulfill whatever it is that we really want in our heart. And so the issue is, why we do have discipline in our behavior, the real issue is, is that we're dealing with our wants. We're dealing with our desires. We're dealing with sin there. And so we ask ourselves questions such as, what do we most treasure? Who do we treasure the most? And what do you trust the most in your heart? Your own intuition, culture, or scripture, or Christ, what defines reality for you? This is the way that we avoid the error here of compromising and bringing corruption into the heart. He then moves on and he says this in verse 8. The end of a matter, and I'll connect this to us uh, logically. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. While oppression and temptation, while these things can corrupt the heart, it is good to remember the end of the matter and not its beginning. The basic idea here is this. That the immediate, the immediate uh, or the beginning of a matter is its hardest point. The better end of anything that we pursue is when it comes to an end, when it is completed. You could say it this way, that reaching a goal is better than the beginning of a task. The end of a journey is better than first setting out. How does that help against temptation? Because we can remember the end consequences of our actions. We can remember the end result of what we are going to do. And we can persevere and know that it might be a struggle to get to that end, to reach the appointed end, but it is worth it. Compromise will only bring hardship. Faithfulness will bring about blessing. 
Now, why then is it the end of a matter better? Well, again, because it's completed. The hard work and the uncertainty at the beginning of a matter is over, and the end of it is settled. The hard work is over. Now, this is a general proverb that forms the foundation of wisdom's ability to exercise then patience. That's why he says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. We can be patient because we're looking to the end and know that there will be a completion to it. And we don't want to destroy or corrupt the thing that was begun in wisdom or the thing that was begun with a good purpose by failing at some point in the way with compromise and losing focus on the task. So the wise then have patience to wait for the end of the matter. The proud person wants it in their own time and on their own terms. That's why he compares them to haughtiness of spirit. The wise person is able to wait patiently for the end of it, is able to endure through hardships. The proud person wants it immediately, is driven by self, is driven by gratification, a variety of motives. And so they are haughty of spirit and they lack patience. And as he'll say in verse 9, have a temptation to anger and frustration and those things that mark off the foolish. Now there's several applications of this idea for us. One application is this, and that Solomon is calling us to, and that is to maintain God's perspective on our lives. Maintain God's perspective on our lives. Maintain perspective on God's purposes for our life. One way that we could apply that is this, and this would connect with verse 5 where he says it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for... for one to listen to the song of fools, is to realize that God brings into our life through his providences his designs to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. And he does that through trials. He does that through rebuke. He does that through correction. He does that through the difficulties in life. And that's why we should receive them as God's good means to shape us. We should be content with discipline. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. One application is this, is to remember that the beginning of a trial is difficult, yes, but when it's met with the responses of wrestling with faith and fighting for holiness, it yields the spiritual fruit of peace and righteousness. The end of the trial will be worth it. So we can be patient of spirit because in the end it's going to yield a spiritual fruit during the trial if we respond well. But in the end it's going to yield a spiritual fruit that will be the most satisfying to our souls. And so we can be patient with God's working and God's providence in our life. Blessing always comes after the pain and through the pain. And the joy of the blessing, though, far outweighs the pain of the trial. One of the greatest examples of this, of course, would be Job. It would be Job. Now, he didn't know the end of the matter, but what Job was brought to was to understand the God who was in control of the end of the matter and the present. And in the end, it brought to him blessing, multiple, multiple blessings that far exceeded what he lost. 
He needed patience. As a matter of fact, the writer of James makes this connection. In James chapter 5, he says this. James chapter 5. Let me turn to it and not misquote it. He says this. And it is in the context of having to endure unrighteousness. And he tells them in verse 7 of James 5, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He tells them in verse 8, Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is near. He reminds them in verse 11, You've heard of the endurance or the patience or the long-suffering of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. He says, Be patient. Yes, you are enduring injustice. Yes, you are enduring the fruit of those who act towards you wickedly and unrighteously, but be patient because there is an end of the matter and the end of the matter is that Christ will return and set things right. So be patient and wait. It means that it has application in this way, especially for us we might appreciate this, that we look at the end of the matter of what God is doing in the world. We look at the end of the matter We as Christians, more than anyone, don't get overly discouraged or despondent about what is happening in our culture even now. We see the the rise of darkness, certainly. We see that light is called evil and evil is called light. We see that what is good in God's eyes is despised and what is despised in God's eyes is celebrated and rejoiced in. We see the rise of of a growing conflict between allegiance to the Lord and allegiance to the requirements of the state. We see that. And we know that there is, there is coming to, to the church in whatever manner and in whatever way a kind of suffering. But we look to the end of the matter. We look to the end and we know that in the end things will be made right, as James warns us. We look to the end of the matter, and so we have patience of spirit. We wait and put in the work of faith now, knowing that in the end we will be ushered into his presence. It's true of the world. It's true of what God is doing in our own lives. Listen to this one, the way one person put it. It was was helpful. It says, take a godly perspective of what is happening in the world. Rather than arrogantly assuming that we know best, we should humbly submit to God as we wait for him to work things out. This applies to our own sanctification in all the areas where we still need to grow. It applies to marriage and family problems and we are tempted to give up instead of press on. It applies to any area in life where we think we know best and wish that God would hurry up and do something when in fact he wants us to hurry up and wait. One of the easiest ways to tell whether we really trust God's timing or not is to see how angry we get when things do not go our way and the sin of exasperation. That captures well the idea here. Godliness, maturity of spirit, is able to be patient with God's providence, which is able to be patient and trusting when God's ways go contrary to our own ideas and our own desires and our own wants and our own thoughts. And this is true again in light of our salvation. We look and we wait constantly for the end of our salvation and the glory that is to come. We who know Christ have the first taste of salvation. We have the first fruits of our redemption. We have the presence of God through the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Son and of the Father. We have these glorious, glorious realities that come with our 
union with Christ, our reconciliation to God. We have all of the promises that are ours. And we have a hope in the resurrection and future glory and future holiness where we'll stand before God blameless with great joy. But we don't experience all of those things now. We have the first taste of them. We long for the full experience of them. If you are a believer in Christ, your most grievous experience in this world is the reality of your remaining sin and the sin that is in the world that does not bring glory to God. And we long and we say, but we know the end of the matter. And so we can be patient of spirit. We can live in concert with God's timing and God's ways. The end of the matter is better than the beginning. What do you have in your life that you're waiting for the Lord on? What area do you have in your life that you're waiting to see God work in? What areas of frustration might you have with this world? What areas of frustration with your job? What areas of frustration in your family? Where areas do you see things are not what I want them to be? Then this is the wisdom of Solomon. It says, be patient. Don't be haughty in spirit. Wait for God to work. Pray. Be faithful in the meantime. Develop your own character. Serve God in your generation. The end of that fruit, or the end of that response will be good. The trial will not last forever. And we can say to us that as whatever we endure and however much we have to wait, that salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And so he says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. The fool, again, is the one who does not fear God, who does not patiently wait. This is the opposite of patience, is anger. Patience is the fruit of humility and faith. Anger is the fruit of pride and self-will. Anger is the response of the selfish insistence that life and others work according to your will and your desires. What frustrates us more and causes, provokes anger than when something goes contrary to our desires? We had one plan, and then suddenly out of nowhere, it seems like it's disrupted. And what do we do? Well, we're tempted to get angry. We're tempted to get angry. Angry at that person, angry at whatever circumstances changed our plans. But he says that anger resides in the heart of fools. The wise person is patient and immediately can see God's providence in it. Uh, one says this, uh, usually we tell ourselves that we have a right to be angry, but Ecclesiastes sees our anger for what it is, sinful folly, spiritual immaturity, and an underlying mistrust of the sovereignty of God. Jesus never got angry. His life was completely entrusted to the will of the Father. He had perfect patience. He had perfect patience. Things did not go his way all the time in terms of a human sense, but he patiently entrusted himself to the will of the Father. So anger stands ultimately in antithesis to the gospel. And the wise person does not concede to it, uh, but develops a character that is patient. Uh, one another said this, If there be not at least some measure of command over the tongue and the temper, it may fairly be asked, what is the gospel worth? What evidence is there of its power upon the heart? He later says, The contemplation of the Savior is the mysterious secret of victory. If our trust and our acknowledgement of the gospel does not affect our tongue and our temper, it may be asked, if it does not show its power upon the heart, then what good is it, he asked. And so the real 
way that we develop this kind of character is the contemplation of the Savior. So we need to move on. The summary of this section then is this, of living wisely in our weakness, is that we live in light of death. We live in light of the reality of sin and the shortness of life, of coming redemption. And when we consider these things and we consider the end and we consider the gospel, then it shapes in our life a godly character and we grow in confidence for that day. And as it says in the New Testament, speaking of the return of Christ, we will not shrink away in shame. We will not shrink away in shame. Secondly, uh, is this, that wisdom lives in light then of God's sovereignty. Look at verses 10 through 14. He says, Do not say then, why is, it the, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Now here he makes a change in this little section of these proverbial statements. Uh, up until this point, he had the repeated refrain, it is better, it is better. It's now replaced with an admonition not to think of former times that were, are better than the present day. He's saying it's better to do this, it's better to do this. And then he says, but don't ever say it was better before than it is in the present. What is the idea here? The idea here is this. Is that we are to live in the present contently under God's providence and under his sovereignty. We are to live contentedly. We are not to doubt God's current purposes in our life, but to trust him is the idea. The, the contrast in verse 9 is the one who has an attitude of complaint because of difficulties in the present and tends to idolize the past. This is a, this is a sermon on its own, a thing to consider on its own. The past is to be a teacher and not an anchor. A past is to teach us to be sure, but not anchor us into bygone realities and experiences. And let me tell you, it's not wise to dwell in the past and to draw many conclusions from it because we tend to view the past through whatever lens of emotion or purpose we have in the moment, in the present. We can remember the past negatively to fulfill all, justify all of our hurts and regrets and all of our angers and desires for revenge, or we can view the past positively under the sovereign hand of God to shape us and in light of our own sin and the need of grace and mercy. It's, it's how we think of the past, of whether it becomes to us a help or a burden. But here he hits at something even deeper, but consistent with that. To, to ask this question, he says, it's not from wisdom that you ask about this. Why is it that the former days were better than these? Lurking behind this is the subtle demand for God to explain himself. Again, that's what happened with Job, isn't it? He endured, he endured, and then he questioned God. And then he questioned God. And at that point, he overstepped the bounds of godliness who are you to question God? Where were you when I created the world? Can you explain to me how it functions and I uphold it in all of its detail? And if you can't, then Job, you better shut your mouth is basically the, the message of Job. And Job, after being confronted with that, says, you're right, I need to shut my mouth. I spoke as one who has no knowledge. I spoke as one speaks foolishly against the infinite glory and wisdom of God. And so that's the idea here. Why don't ask that? Why is the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask that. And it tends to be a willful ignorance of God's presence, blessings, and calls. And the call here is to trust and obey him in the present. Uh, 
When we ask that question, it's often to justify a self-centered and disgruntled spirit because things are not going our way. Why is it that way? Why wasn't it? Why can't it be good like it was before? It's because God has a purpose for you now. Live here is the idea. Now, there is a sense, I would make a caveat here, that there is a sense in which this question can be asked in faith, and we see that in Scripture, when it can be directed toward God, not complaining, but seeking His grace. For example, and I'll just give you one, Psalm 44, 23, Arouse yourself, O Lord. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake and do not reject us forever. Why, God, have you dealt with us kindly in the past and now we languish under this suffering and this opposition? But the context of that and the end of those kind of questions, which we see throughout the Psalms, is one of trust. Of one, it is a sincere expression toward God of the angst of the soul, but it is not rebelling against God. It is of genuine perplexity because of the littleness of our faith. And it is a perplexity that ultimately ends up in trust and submission before him. But here he's addressing the latter. This is not an expression of trust. It is an expression of grumbling and complaining. And it is quite amazing how easily we can complain and question God so often for our adversities. One of the greatest ways is when people might say, or someone might say, you know, why are things going so bad for me? Why would God let things sin and run so rampant? The real question is what? Why doesn't he destroy it more immediately? Why is he so patient with the corruption of man? Why is he so patient with me? How little, one said, we bemoan and complain of our own sin and our wretched hearts. Quote, it is folly to cry out of the badness of the times when there is so much more reason to complain of the badness of our own hearts. And when there is such reason to be thankful that they are not worse. That kind of turns things around, doesn't it? We complain so much of the badness and the trials we have, but seem to be less concerned with the badness and the sin that remains in our own hearts. And our own need of repentance. And so that's the heart here. It's really a proud heart that says that. Why are the former days better? Were they better? Who does that remind you of? Israel. Oh, I long for the days, what? When we sat by Egypt and we had food. We lived in our houses. It was so good in Egypt. Right? That's not true. You were slaves in Egypt. You were under burden. You longed to be freed where you could go and worship your God, where you could be freed under the burden of Pharaoh's oppression. But as soon as things got difficult and God did not work according to their idea, they complained and they remembered how good it was in Egypt. You see, it's any way you want to look at it. Joseph said, I look at my past and I don't say, why did I have to go through all of that I had it so good. Why didn't it be like those early years when my dad was making me special clothes and I was having these great dreams that said I was going to be above my brothers and life was really working and going according to my plan. He didn't sit around and in prison being wronged by his own family and by others and complain, but he, he trusted God. He looked at the end of the matter. He waited. And in the end, for him... According to God's purpose and plan, it worked out well. 
And he could say, I look back at that and say, that was a part of God's shaping work in my life. Do you look at your past as an excuse to complain and hold grudges or to bear and nurse inner bitterness or burdens? Or do you look at your past as a part of God's good providence of you, a sinner living in a fallen world, and how he shaped you and used that to mature you, to reveal Christ maybe to you for some? We need to see God's hand in our past and not get lost and left there. And not to mention, again, our, our moods themselves flavor how we look at the past. You ever have the same event that one time can bring you joy and another time irritation? It's all in how you look at it. And so he says it's not wise to live that way. And it certainly isn't wise to live before God in that way. That actually is foolishness. Live where you are, serve God where you are, deal with your sin where you are, work out righteousness where you are, be contented under God's hand where you are today. Don't worry about tomorrow, it has enough trouble, it'll take care of its own. Don't worry about yesterday, it's already gone and passed. But today, today God is working in our life. And today God is calling us to holiness and obedience. Today God is calling us to faithfulness. That's the idea here. That's the idea. And God is working greater things than we can understand. If you remember at the end of chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, the few years of his futile life. He'll spend them like a shadow for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun. Again, we don't know what's even best for our own lives. Oh, man, there was a... Y'all will remember, I hate mentioning this because it's kind of silly, but... Uh, that old country song, uh, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers, or something like that. I'm in the Northeast, I'm sorry. If I were in South Carolina right now, I'd be, mm-hmm. but we're not. So you'll just trust me, that was a song, as a country song. That's a different kind of music some of y'all haven't heard of. Uh, it's a little twangy. Anyway, it was a song, We Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Well, we can understand that in our own lives in many ways that we're so glad that God didn't work the way that we thought he should in that moment because we see there was something better at the end and how that would not have been the best. But we take that in the bigger picture of our lives and in this world as well. One person said this, Leave God's work to him and let us attend to our own work, which is not so much to change the world but to change ourselves to serve our own generation by the will of God and to let the badness of the age in which we live make us more wise, more circumspect, and more humble. That's the right response. Don't worry about what went behind. Don't be anxious about the future. Attend to the work that God has for you today. Today. Be faithful today. Don't cause yourself angst over things that are completely outside of your control. So this spiritual wisdom gives a greater advantage. And and he makes an interesting parallel to make that point in verse 11. For it's not from wisdom that you ask about this, verse 11, but wisdom or wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So it's foolish to ask the question of why were the former days better than these. It's wise to live in the present. And if we can lay hold of that wisdom, it will bring more value to our life, more joy and contentment to our life than even an inheritance. 
But in order to make that comparison, he does acknowledge that there is an advantage to having an inheritance. In this context, it would have been mostly land, but the idea is some kind of wealth, something valuable in terms of earthly affairs. As a matter of fact, that's why he says later in the very next verse that protection is that wisdom is protection as money is protection. And the reality is that Scripture makes very clear, and this is what makes the parallel have its value, the comparison, is that money does bring advantages in life. It's better to have money than not to have money. There's nothing particularly spiritual about being poor or having lack. It's true that wealth makes life easier. It's simply easier if a person has wealth to live in this world than without wealth. And he's just acknowledging that. Let me just give you a few. I won't go through everything listed here. Proverbs 10, 15. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. It protects them. I'm tempted to say, why, why are those who live in wealthy, gated communities less concerned about those who don't? And the decisions that they make that affect those in poorer communities. It doesn't affect them. No gang of marauding bandits is likely to go into a neighborhood where homes start at $5 million as they will when they start at $50,000, right? There's a certain kind of protection from the harms of this world that money brings. The loss of a job for one who has a million dollars in the bank is less than the loss of the job of one who has $500 in the bank. You get the idea. Money has its advantage. It is a certain kind of fortress it certainly makes life easier. That could be added. It increases friends. Proverbs 14, 20. The poor man, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. You give somebody with wealth and with popularity and fame, it's not easy to find a circle of so-called friends around them. It is harder for the poor man. If two walked in the door, being of equal intelligence and equal physical appearance, equal delightfulness of personality and one was rich, rich and one was poor, who do you think people would flock around? The rich man. This is why James had to warn in your congregation, don't look at the one given advantage who has the signs, the external signs of wealth. Treat everyone equally. Why? Because our tendency naturally is to give an advantage to the wealthy. And so he's just acknowledging that. It also doesn't guarantee joy as Solomon is made clear and it brings its own set of problems. But here he's simply acknowledging this, that money and inheritance, wealth, does bring an advantage, but there's something even greater than this, and it is wisdom, spiritual wisdom. It can bring the blessing of contentment and joy and true satisfaction. We just, as he dealt with in chapter 5, Wealth can also bring its own problems of worry and concern. The more wealth you have, the more concerned you are about losing wealth. The more wealth you have, the more you're concerned are people taking advantage of you. The more wealth you have, the more sorrow you can feel when it's gone and it does come and go for many. And so it brings its own problems as well. And here he's simply saying that, look, wealth does bring help in life, but wisdom is far greater. It brings contentment, joy, and satisfaction. And so the wise trust in the Lord with all of their heart and do not lean on their own understanding. They acknowledge the Lord in all of their ways and they follow in the way that he makes their path clear. 
Listen to this. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all those who hold her fast. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. It's better to be have less than it is and have joy than it is to have much and have contention. But that being said, wealth does have its advantages, but wisdom is better. And it, wisdom then lives under the sovereign hand of God and has a contentment. And so that's where he goes next. And this is where he ends. That wisdom lives under the mystery of providence, verses 13, 14. Consider the work of God. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent, and in the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that men will not discover anything that is after them. And this is, to return to the the initial idea, one of the sweetest comforts in the world, that our lives as well as the entire universe is ordered and controlled by a sovereign God who is all good and all powerful and all wise and all gracious and all loving and all holy. Nothing is outside of his sovereign purposes. The worst thing in the world, you could say, is that aberrant theology that says God is surprised and is hurt by our tragedy as we are. I don't want God to be hurt by my tragedy. I want him to be in control of it, right? And if we know God, that is a comfort. We want that because he's good. And we would expect being creatures as we are, being finite, fallen, corrupted, weak creatures that we are, that there would be a myriad of things that God does that we don't understand. What in the world kind of audacity and pride does it take to think that God would somehow have to make his plans explainable to me as if I could get it anyway? Right? That's again what he says to Job. You can't do the smallest thing. And Jesus said, you can't even make one hair white and one hair black. You can't add a second to your life. Why in the world are you going to worry about the things that you have no control over? And the wise get this and they live under it. And that means the control over the things when there's a time of blessing and prosperity and when there is adversity. The church so often is embarrassed by this, it seems, doesn't it? Embarrassed by this. It seems like the church and we sometimes as Christians are always trying to get God off the hook so people will like him better. He doesn't care. He is who he is. He demands to be worshipped. He doesn't fit our ideas of what he should do and we shouldn't be concerned to do that. When God talks about sin and death and hell, we talk about sin, death and hell. When he talks about Christ as the only way, we talk about Christ as the only way. When we say his word is authoritative, we act as such as though it does have all authority from our Lord. We don't try to get God off the hook when bad things happen. What did Jesus say? We've gone to, and he said many things. Uh, We we mentioned this before though. Evil is usually sometimes helpfully categorized into two, uh, two different categories, natural evil and moral evil. And so both are confronted in uh, Luke 13. The Tower of Siloam fell. That's natural evil. It's just part of the tragedies of living in a fallen world. People died. 
There's moral evil. Pilate came and he slid, slew some people by their sacrifice. It was an evil act of murder. In both of them, what does Jesus say? You remember? Repent, or you're going to die in the same way. In other words, God is in control of that, and his message to you is consider your end and repent. But here Solomon just takes that idea, but puts it in another way. Consider the work of God. You're not going to be able to figure it out. And God has a purpose and a plan that you are not going to change. You're not going to understand it. So when things go well, be happy. And in a day of adversity, and they don't consider that God is in control of both. He is the God of both. He is, and that is a great comfort. There is not a rebel atom in the universe and all the arrayed might of human power is as Isaiah said, nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Language does not allow a more complete way of expressing how absolutely meaningless all of the rebellion of the nations are to God who is sovereign. He will accomplish his purposes. And in fact, he gives that statement, not just to make it, but to tell his people, I made a promise, I will fulfill it, I will bring you in the land. Yes, you're under a sovereign nation now, but I'm gonna destroy that nation and fulfill my promise. And don't think that all of the arrogant speech of all of the leaders of the world have any bearing at all to me and what I have promised and what I will do. We are now living under God's providence and the end of which is that he will sum all things up in Christ and he will conform us perfectly to his image. One has said this. Uh, let me read to you just quickly here and then we're gonna wrap this up. Isaiah 45, verse seven says this, that God, well, let me read verse six, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Listen, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God does it. Do you understand it? Do I understand all of it? No, of course not, because I'm not God. But God does it. He causes light and he creates darkness. We, are, we want to give God credit when things go well and somehow say that he's not involved when things go poorly. He is. He ordains both. He's not the cause of moral evil. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. But he directs evil. He ordained that evil would exist. He sovereignly rules over evil in a way that it accomplishes his purpose. I would remind you that the authority that God gives to civil leaders to persecute his people is from God. Who gives Antichrist his power and authority? Not Antichrist, not Satan. He's not the sovereign in the universe. God does, and he gives it to him for a specific amount of time to fulfill a particular purpose, and then he will judge him at the end. And he gives him authority that will cause many people to be beheaded. Who gave Caesar authority? God gave him authority. And so on down the line. God did that because he's achieving something. God, God uses all of these in the full-orbed sense in our life and of his creation to accomplish something. And the wise person takes that to heart and realizes that the mystery of God's working is just that. It's a mystery. And we can live contentedly under it. Let me give you this, and then this I will end. 
Uh, I actually had a picture for a great illustration, but we're going to have to save it. What Isaiah asserts is that God as creator is ultimately responsible for everything in nature, from light to dark and for everything in history, from good fortune and misfortune. What the prophet is saying is that if bad conditions exist in my life, they are not there because some evil God has thwarted the good intentions of a kindly but ineffectual grandfather God. Who would like me to have good conditions but just can't bring them about? They may be there because I have sinned against his natural and moral laws, or they may be there because by their means I can become more like him, or they may be there for reasons that he cannot explain to me. But they are not there in spite of God. He is the only uncaused cause in the universe. They're not there in spite of God. They are there because of God's purpose. And so when we can receive that and know that not God's purpose as someone vindictive, but is full of love and grace and goodness, someone that he could say all things cause, he causes to work together for good. And even if we're led to sheep by slaughter, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And how he who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? And so we take the good and we take the trials. One helpful illustration, I will just mention it, is, uh, you, and you may have heard this, is that if we look at life sometimes like a tapestry, have you heard that before? And if you look at the front of a tapestry, if you've ever seen a beautiful tapestry, it's beautiful. It's, it's intricate. It has, uh, well, when, especially when it was first made, these vibrant colors and, and this, these details that are just wonderful, and they do this picture. But if you make this uh, scene or this picture, if you look around on the backside of it, what does it look like? It looks like a mess. It looks like a mess. And sometimes, if we could put a picture to that, uh, our lives are like that. If you looked at it from God's perspective, there's this beautiful, perfect picture of what he's doing that he will receive glory of for all of eternity by those who are there with him. They will praise him for his wisdom, praise him for his kindness and his goodness. Ah, there it is. Look at that. That's the front side. Where's the back side? There's the back side. All right. Sometimes life looks like that or even worse. But if that, and we live on the backside of God's sovereignty, the backside of eternity, the backside of heaven. But we trust that on the other side is a beautiful picture of goodness and wisdom and power and strength and honor and might. And we will, we will give him the praise for that. But right now, we have to trust him. We have to trust him. Let me read this poem, and then we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. It's by Corey ten Boom, whom you know certainly was not a stranger to suffering. She said this, using this illustration, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and an eye in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let me pray and then we'll remember the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you for the promises of your word and you are so good and full of loving kindness and mercy. Your goodness is shown to all men in the ways that you allow even those who are rebels to enjoy good things in creation. Your goodness is in that you 
proclaim the gospel that even sinners and rebels such as us could know the forgiveness and the grace that is in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, this is a world under sin. It is a world that is groaning under the burden of corruption. And we ourselves groan because we have remaining corruption in us. And we, along with all of creation, wait until that day we will be set free into the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. Help us to be patient. Help us to wait until that day, Lord, especially when there are so many things, particularly in our times, that could cause us to be fearful and anxious and to worry. And why we do care deeply and why we do live appropriately in our culture We don't live dismayed and anxious and fearful because our God is on his throne, because you will bring about all of your promises just as you have said. Nothing can thwart them. And we do long and wait and keep this before our eyes of that day, O Christ, when we will see you face to face. And ultimately that day when our bodies will be transformed, imperishable, incorruptible, and able in the flesh to stand before you blameless with great joy because we have been conformed to the body of your glory, completely into your likeness. What a glorious day. Thank you for the promises of your word. May we know it deeply. And even now as we come to the table, encourage our hearts. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.